Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, please. Matthew 5. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 970 in that Bible. And we have come to the end. Today is the last day of our sermon series, The Upside Down Kingdom. We've been working through this this fall, and so today's the last day for this. We'll wrap this up. And we have spent time this fall digging into the nature of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. That when Jesus arrived on the earth, he said, the kingdom of heaven is now here. And I know I've been saying this every single week, and I've been doing that on purpose because we want it to sink in. We really want it to go deep. When we're repetitive, we do that on purpose. Sometimes people come up and they say, do you know when you like talk about the hub every Sunday, it's kind of repetitive, you do it the same way every time? And I say, I do know that. I am quite aware I'm the one doing the talking. I know very well that it's repetitive. Part of that is so that it's sinking, sinking in for you guys too, so that if you meet any visitor, you're able to say, hey, if you're new here, come on to the hub, we have a gift for you. And it's here just to say thank you. We want you guys to know that stuff too. Although there was a point when the kids were in the service where I was disciplining Kaylee on something, nothing major, but she wasn't listening. So I said, Kaylee, pay attention. And she said, to the bulletin, everything you need to know is in there. And I went, wow. And there's fun moments as a parent like that where you're just like, well, you shouldn't really be sassy, but that was a pretty good burn right there. That was well done. So what we have been repeating here week after week is that when Jesus arrived, he said the kingdom of heaven is here. The kingdom of heaven is starting on earth now. It's not just something we're going to get to one day. Jesus is building his kingdom on earth now. And if we're followers of Jesus, we're citizens of that kingdom. And as citizens of that kingdom, we need to walk in the ways of the kingdom. Every kingdom has laws and a culture and values. And so we want to learn more about the nature of this kingdom so that we can live this out. And as we've been emphasizing in this series, a lot of the ways of the kingdom of heaven are not natural to us. They are actually the opposite, maybe, of how we would naturally want to act. They're very different than the way the world tells us to act. And so they are upside down. They are backwards. They are not intuitive. They are counterintuitive. They are countercultural. And so we wanted to dig into that, the nature of the kingdom of heaven, this upside down kingdom, and how can we live this out better? Our tagline has been, to learn the ways of the kingdom is to find the will of the king. That Jesus wants us doing these things. He is the one that is setting up this kingdom. And so if we want to live a life that is pleasing to him and we want to walk in his will, then we need to walk in his ways and we need to learn about how we can actually do that. So we're wrapping up today as we talk about loving our enemies. There is a story of a preacher. This is a joke. It's not a true story. Uh, but the story of a preacher who's preaching on loving your enemies in church on a Sunday morning. And so he's talking to his church out of Matthew chapter 5 about loving our enemies. And he talks about, you know, we all have enemies, at least sometimes. We don't maybe walk around thinking of people as our enemies, but we all have people in our life who have hurt us. We all have people in our life who we're struggling with. We all have people in our life who, yeah, maybe they've done things or, or are just difficult to get along with. And so we all have that. And so he's like, how many people acknowledge that you've got some enemies in your life? You might not like that word. And so everybody puts their hands up. And he says, how many would say that you have a lot of enemies in your life? And a few keep their hands up and it gets like a church laugh. Ha 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 ha. And then he's like, yeah, and I mean, obviously no one here is going to admit that they don't have any enemies. And one man's hand goes up in the back. It's an elderly man. 
And the preacher says, well, sir, I mean, yeah, thank you. But we all, there, we all have someone that we struggle with. And the man's shaking his head, no. And so as the preacher looks at this man, he goes, the man's just kind of glowing. Like he's just, he's happy, he's smiling, he, he seems peaceful, he's cute, just kind of a cute older man. And he says, sir, do you really, you don't have any enemies? And the man stands up and says, no, I, I can honestly say I don't have any enemies. And the preacher says, well, that's, that's remarkable. And how old are you, sir? He says, I am 90 years old. And he says, wow, to have lived a life that long, to live your life in such a way that you really don't have any enemies. What is your secret? Teach us something. How can you live such a godly life? How can you live in such a way that you can honestly say at 90 years old, you don't have any enemies? And the man said, well, I've just outlived them. Those jerks are all dead. So we've all got someone. We've all got someone. And sometimes it's, it's hard because that person can be a member of our family. Sometimes that person can be someone we were once really close with. Sometimes it's someone at work or at school or, or whatever, broadly, broader than that. Uh, there are enemies that Canada has. There are enemies around the world. And so it can mean a lot of different things. But Jesus teaches on enemies in such a way that's so radically different than what our instincts would tell us to do. So let's take a look at what he had to say. Uh, we're in Matthew chapter five, page 970 in the Pew Bible. And we're starting in verse 43. This is Jesus preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. There's lots of really rich teaching that he has in here. So verse 43, Jesus says, "'You have heard that it was said, "'Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. "'But I tell you, love your enemies "'and pray for those who persecute you, "'that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so it's been said loving your enemies is the moral teaching that sets Christianity apart from all the other religions and philosophies of the world. There's a lot of theological differences between the religions and the philosophies of the world, but if you look at the different religions side by side, you will see similarities. Most of them say something like, don't lie. Most of them say we shouldn't murder. Most of them say, take care of the poor in one way or another. So there are some similarities in the moral teaching, but this is radically different where Jesus says, love not just your neighbor, most religions say love your neighbor, but Jesus actually says, no, you go further than that as a follower of Jesus. You don't just love your neighbor as a follower of Jesus, you love even your enemy. It goes further and it's challenging, it's not easy. And for 2000 years, Christians have always wanted to add a but or an unless at the end of that statement. Love your enemies unless. Love your enemies, but we always want to add caveats and conditions to that. And Anabaptists have always actually been pretty good at saying, you know what, Jesus seems pretty unambiguous in the teaching. Jesus didn't add anything to it, so we're not going to add stuff to his words. If Jesus said, love your enemies, he meant love your enemies. If Jesus says this is the way that we're supposed to live, and then he also modeled that for us, then we're going to take that seriously. And so in our text today, verse 43, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And as Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, he starts off several of the little mini paragraphs that way. You've heard that it was said. 
eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, and then he would add sort of a, a different take on the teaching or he would add something to the teaching. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, don't even lust. And so there's a bit of a formula there and he's typically quoting from the Old Testament law when he does it. The word of God says, and here's how we take that to the next level. That's part of what the Sermon of the Mount is about. Now this one isn't there. The Old Testament law nowhere says, hate your enemy. Nowhere in the scriptures did it say hate your enemy. Uh, and there's little snippets of it. There's little hints of where Jesus is going to go found in the Old Testament. Exodus 23, 4 and 5. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to return it. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help them with it. So it doesn't say love your enemy, but there's a hint there uh, that we should be treating our enemies better. Proverbs 25, verse 21, 22. We looked at this one last week briefly. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you'll heat burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. You can listen to last week's sermon where we dug into what those coals were. But there are hints of that, of, of blessing your enemy even in the Old Testament, even in uh, the scriptures that Jesus was looking to. And so nowhere in the Old Testament does it say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Uh, but nowhere are they explicitly told, love your enemy either. And so when Jesus comes with this, he's probably quoting what's just kind of common sense. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your, uh, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's, that's kind of natural. That's the way you would think it should be. That's the way that kind of makes sense, that you're gonna love those who are, are with you. And if someone's against you, then you have permission to not love that person. That's just kind of common sense. And again, what Jesus comes and does is teach us something that's completely upside down to that. If our natural instincts and, and maybe the natural way of the world is you love those who are on your side and you hate those who aren't on your side, uh, Jesus comes with something very, very different and says, no, we're not just going to love the people on our side. We're going to love even those who are against us, even those who are opposed to us. And in the time that he's saying that, the Jewish people have lots of enemies. Like this wouldn't have been an abstract teaching. Sometimes when I'm, I'm teaching on this, people say, just even that word enemy, like there's people I struggle with, but I don't want to use the word enemy. Like that seems pretty harsh and, and pretty strong. But we're really just talking about anyone you struggle with anyone who's, who's maybe opposed you, anyone who's hurt you. Uh, if the word enemy is too intense for you, so be it. But that's what we're talking about. And everybody has people like that in their lives. For the Jewish people at the time that Jesus is here, the Romans have taken over the land. The Romans are in charge. They hate the Jewish people. They are, are oppressive. They are cruel. The Jewish people have Samaritan people in the land that they are constantly in conflict with. They have uh, even just people, obviously, as we all do, maybe even just in our circles or in our towns or, or in our families, maybe, that we're struggling with. So enemies can mean lots of things. So for us, it might not literally be, uh, you know, we think that the, the state of Canada is our enemy, the way the Jewish people could say Rome was their enemy, but, uh, but we have people in our lives. We have people in our circles who we struggle with. There are uh, around the world radical uh, jihadists who want us dead, uh, so we could certainly think of them as enemies. I mean, it, it can look a lot of different ways, but uh, this is a teaching that applies to everybody. It's for all of us. So Jesus says, you know what? It's, it is commonly said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's so interesting that when Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so that you can be children of God. 
There is something about loving your enemies. There is something about blessing those who are after you that makes you his kids. It makes you like him. And Jesus adds, like, even your father in heaven, he sends sunshine on the good and the bad. He sends the sunshine on his kids and on his enemies. He sends rain uh, to water the crops. It's for the righteous and for the righteous. Even God blesses his enemies. Even the Father blesses those who have rebelled against them. There is a basic level of grace that is available even for them in the sun and the rain. The Father gives that blessing to everybody. And a big part of this, as we think about, uh, you know, the people in our lives that we struggle with, it's very easy for us to, uh, to get kind of defensive. And, and the most common thing that I hear people say is, but you don't know what they did. And, and I get it. I get it. The hurt is real. The pain is real. What they did was real. But part of loving our enemies is not because they deserve it. It's not because they didn't do something. But it's also understanding our relationship with God and our walk with him. Because Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says, For those of us who are followers after Jesus, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, enemies of each other and enemies of God. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. This shows up other times in Paul's writings as well, that there were times when we were enemies of God. There were times when we were rebels. There were times when we had walked away from him, when we had hurt him, when we had rejected him. We were enemies of God, and then he brought us back. He loved us, even though we were his enemies. And then John writes in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. We don't have to generate it on our own. We don't have to justify it on our own. That we are to love him and love others because he loved us first. We are to love our enemies because when we were enemies of him, he loved us then. That God demonstrates his own great love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He shows his love for us in that while we were his enemies, while we were rebels, while we were on our own, while we were walking away from him, in his love, he died for us there. Not that we had cleaned ourselves up to such a good point where he decided, hey, you guys are worth dying for now. It's no, when we were at our worst, he died for us and reached out for us. And so part of loving our enemies comes from that understanding that I was his enemy and he loved me. And he blessed me and he reached out to me and he showed himself to me and he drew my, myself to him. And, and that's how God treated me, his enemy. And so on what grounds can I say, well, I'm not gonna do that for anybody else. I'm not gonna do that for what they did. They, they hurt me, they rejected me, they walked away from me. It's no, love your enemies so that you will be children of your father in heaven. There is something about loving our enemies that makes us look like God's kids. It makes us more like him. It makes us look like him. So the good news for us is, is that when we were God's enemies, he died for us and he saved us. That when we were rebels, he was gracious to us and he forgave us as we turned back to him. That's the good news. The bad news is we now have to go do that for everybody in our lives. The grace that we've been given is a grace we need to share. The love that we've been given is a love that we need to share. It's actually hypocritical for me not to. 
It's hypocritical for me to take, I'll take all the love, all the forgiveness, all the grace, even though I was your enemy, but I'm not going to give that to anyone in my life who hurts me or who's wronged me or who is against me. We love our enemies as the people of God. And so Jesus doesn't just teach us that. Of course, he models that for us. And we talked a bit about this uh, in previous weeks, that even as he's dying on the cross, loving and forgiving the ones who are doing it to him. He doesn't just teach us, he shows us. And there are other people, when we look around, who have modeled this for us as well. Uh, Martin Luther King, famously, uh, African-American civil rights leader in the 60s, famously taught this and modeled this. He was a devout Christian, he was a pastor, and he led the civil rights movement. He was one of the main leaders in the southern states where there is still a lot of institutional racism that he was standing up against and uh, lots of stuff going on. And so he was hated by, uh, by white supremacists, by those who wanted to keep things as they were. So one night Martin Luther King is preaching at a church and some white supremacists come and they throw a bomb at his house. His wife and his daughter are in the house at the time and the bomb goes off in the front porch. Thankfully, uh, they're at the back of the house and everything is fine. So he's in the middle of preaching. Somebody comes running, says there's been an explosion at your house. So he drops what he's doing. He races to his house. He runs inside. Everybody is fine. Uh, and if there's anything that would make a man lose it, I would think it would be that, right? You would never judge a man in that case. You came after my kids. You came after my wife. Uh, there would be nothing that you would ever look at the man who, who took a step of self-defense or who went after someone. You would never judge that person, even if we could, you know, maybe debate the why of it. Like you would, of course, of course. And as he's inside the house, uh, a mob begins to gather outside his door of, of African-American people who are understandably furious. And, and some of them have guns, and some of them have knives, and some of them have bombs, and they are ready to go. Again, understandably, they are ready to defend him, they are ready to take revenge, they are ready to go and do that. A couple of newspaper reporters are there uh, watching this whole thing unfold, and so Martin Luther King comes out of his house, he's, a, he's assured that his wife and daughter are okay, and he comes out on the front porch, and one of the journalists wrote down what he said to the crowd that day. And so what he said to them was, don't get panicky, don't do anything panicky, don't get your weapons. If you have weapons, take them home. He who lives by the sword will perish by the sword. Remember, that is what Jesus said. We are not advocating violence. We want to love our enemies. I want you to love our enemies. Be good to them. This is what we must live by. We must meet hate with love. Can you imagine saying those words in that moment? Like your house is still smoldering. And, and again, would have been fully justified in most people's minds to, to take some revenge or to do something. And yet there he is making peace. And the encouragement is, no, love your enemies, guys. Love your enemies. We're not going to do to them what they've done to us. We are not going to meet their hate with our hate. Very practically, what would have happened if that small mob had gone out and done something that night? Right? For any white supremacist out there who is deceived by their racist ideology, it would have just given them an excuse to say, see, see what happens, they're violent. They would have ignored the violence that led to it, but it wouldn't have accomplished anything. More people would have got hurt, more people would have uh, maybe died, and, and it wouldn't have fixed anything in the greater picture of this problem. Martin Luther King is there in that moment, and he's preaching Jesus. 
He is a peacemaker in that moment. He's diffusing the situation. The situation didn't escalate from there. He didn't just preach love your enemies. He models love your enemies in a very, very intense and a very real way, which is both challenging and inspiring. As Jesus moves on in the passage, verse 46 and 47, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? If you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Uh, so he kind of strips away any excuses. We like to lean a lot on, on where we're loving to the people who, who love us, where we're loving towards the people in our lives. And so we say things like, hey, I'm a very committed husband. I'm a very hands-on, intentional father. Uh, I'm really investing in my family. I'm, really, uh, I'm a good brother to my brothers and sisters. I'm a good friend. I'm, and Jesus is saying, that's great, but everybody is supposed to do that. That doesn't actually set you apart. Right? So if you love your wife and treat your, your wife well, that's amazing, but you're supposed to do that. That's, there's no extra credit for that. If you're a hands-on, intentional parent, good, that is good, but that's expected. That's what a parent's supposed to do. If you want to show love on a whole other level that Jesus calls us to, then loving your enemies is what real, intense, sacrificial, dedicated, intentional love looks like. Because loving my kids, like, I mean, there's, there's challenges being a parent, right, Mike? Everybody knows that's, there's challenges. To, I love them all the time. Some days are easier maybe than others. But it's also overall kind of easy to love my kids because I, I just love them. And, and it's easy to love my wife. Again, maybe some days are a bit more challenging than others. But, but loving our family, loving our own people, even the tax collectors, these were the people who had uh, compromised themselves. They were Jewish people who had partnered with the Romans to, to take money, and they were famously corrupt, and they were stealing, and uh, they were betraying their people, betraying their country. And he says, even the tax collectors love those who love them. Even the tax collectors do that. They're corrupt and, and sinful people, and they can do that. If you love your own people, if you love your immediate family, if you love your, your own group of people, whether that's your own, uh, you know, maybe your own neighborhood or your own church family or your own ethnic group or whatever, uh, that's just kind of normal. Even the pagans who don't know God have a group that they connect with and that they love, right? Even those who are far from God do that. So that's not really the mark of love, Jesus is saying. Like, that's great, but that's, that's just kind of normal. That's, that's common to humanity, that you would love your family, that you would love the people around you, that you would love your group. That's not what sets you apart. What sets you apart is loving your enemy, which is upside down to, to what our natural instincts would have us do. Uh, just the, the section earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has said this. This is Matthew 5, 38 to 41. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. He's quoting the Old Testament scripture. The law says, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. If you knock my eye out, I get to take your eye out. It was justice in the Old Testament. If you knock out my tooth, you will have a tooth taken out. It was how they maintained justice in their society. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And that's honestly maybe one of the most challenging sections of what Jesus teaches us. Because I've had people come to me and say, so if I'm getting sued, I'm not just only supposed to give them what they're suing me for. I'm supposed to give them above and beyond? That doesn't sound right. And it, it doesn't. But what is he saying, right? That's challenging. 
but I want to fight. I want to defend myself. That's not right. Okay, I hear you. But what do we do with what Jesus is, is saying to us here? I'm supposed to take a hit and not hit back? I don't know how else we read that. Elaborate things have been created about this section of scripture for why it doesn't mean what it seems to mean, right? Turn the other cheek doesn't mean that you stand there and let someone hit you twice because what it was really about was about honor and you would, you would hit someone with the left hand and that meant it was a dishonoring thing. So it's just, that all could be true. It's just not in there. It just doesn't say that, right? It's kind of like love your enemy, but we add stuff to it and we add stuff to it to make the hard teachings of Jesus, I think a little easier to swallow. This is not an easy thing. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. So Roman soldiers at the time who were in charge of Israel had the right to commandeer any citizen at any time and carry their load for a mile. Uh, so if, I, if I'm a soldier and I'm moving from point A to B, I can say, all right, Jason, you're a Jewish citizen. You're going to carry my load for me for a mile. And the limit was a mile. That's what the law said. You could, you could ask someone to help, uh, but you could only ask them to help you for one mile. So there's a very real, real world context for the people who are hearing Jesus teach this 2,000 years ago. So if a Roman soldier forces you to go a mile with them, if they come along and say, hey, you're, I'm commandeering you to carry my load for me uh, for a mile, Jesus says, go another. Go two miles. Because the first one is law, but the second one is love. And as you make the movement from law into love, you also change yourself. The first mile, I'm a slave. The second mile, I'm not a slave. I am acting in love. The second mile, I'm an equal who's actually serving you. Right? It changes who I am. It changes me from being a victim. It changes my mentality. And it becomes, okay, I am no longer an oppressed person doing what they're told by an evil empire, but I am now a servant of God, obeying God, serving somebody else, being a blessing, loving my enemy for that second mile. The second mile is love. And so, again, I think this is some actually the most challenging teaching that Jesus, that Jesus brings us, but the point is love always goes further than what is, rare, what is required. Love never does the bare minimum. Love always goes above and beyond. And even for those who would strike us, even the, for those who would sue us, even for those who would oppress us, who would make us slaves, when we start acting in love, we actually can start to undo whatever they are feeling towards us. Martin Luther King's whole lifestyle began to literally change the society that he lived in because he wasn't retaliating, because he wasn't violent, because he was loving his enemies, people's hearts and minds began to change. If someone hits me and I hit them back, I've maybe just justified the reason they felt they wanted to hit me in the first place. And maybe now they need to feel to hit me again because now I've hit them and the, the conflict is escalating. If they hit me and I don't retaliate, I can disarm maybe what they're doing. I can make them see I'm not your enemy. I'm not trying to hurt you. I'm not out to get you. And, and violence can stop behavior, but it doesn't tend to change people. But love can change people. And we can say that with authority because for any of us who know Jesus and have walked with Jesus, his love has changed us. He didn't treat us as our sins deserved. He didn't retaliate against us for what we've done towards him. And so his love is changing us and transforming us. There's another great real-life example in Nelson Mandela, uh, president of South Africa. And Mandela's a bit of a complicated figure. 
because he was in prison for many years. Uh, South Africa had apartheid in place for many decades. This is institutional racism. Uh, the races are separate. White people uh, have all the power. They have most of the money. Uh, black Africans are in slums and they can only do certain jobs and there's curfews and it's very oppressive and it's all very legal and it's all very much in the, just the whole system of this society in South Africa. So Mandela begins to, as a young man, begins to stand up against this. There's protest and different things. Uh, eventually, he gets to the point where he starts uh, blowing up buildings in, in fighting against this oppressive regime. So that's actually what he went to jail for. He didn't go to jail just because he was protesting. He went to jail technically for terrorism. Uh, and so it has been said that one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. Uh, so you can decide whether it's a noble thing or whether it's, a, you know, they were, they were very adamant. They didn't want to kill anybody. They didn't want to hurt anybody. But they started blowing up buildings, government buildings and different things at night when no one was in them. But that's eventually what he got arrested for. He got put into prison. So he's been under this racist regime his whole life. Uh, he's in a very racist prison and, and he is uh, there for, for 19 years. And when he gets out, uh, apartheid is coming to an end. The whole world starts pressuring South Africa. You can't have this in your, in your laws. You can't have this formalized in your society. So after a, a long process and a lot of pressure and a lot of conversation, South Africa begins to dismantle apartheid and bring about equality for the races in South Africa. And when they have their first fully free elections where uh, black Africans are allowed to vote and not just white Africans, Mandela is elected as the first president of this newly united society. And there were people in his camp who were very excited to now turn the tables after decades of white oppression. Now it's time to turn it all around, right? Now, now those of us who have been oppressed are in charge. Now we are the ones who will get to set the rules and we are the ones who will make the divisions and we are the ones who will take the wealth and the power. And when Nelson Mandela got there, he said, no, we are not going to do that. Because he wasn't interested in revenge, he was re interested in reconciliation. He was interested in, in, in having a country that blacks and whites could live together and goodness knows, South Africa still has struggles in this and it's far from perfect. But he was such a remarkable man to be that first president because he wasn't necessarily uh, quoting scripture as he did it, but he was teaching and practicing loving your enemies. Even though terrible things had been done to him in his lifetime and, and he had paid a terrible price from white people in his life, when he got there, he said, we're not retaliating, we're not flipping the table, we're gonna find a new way forward together. He won the Nobel Peace Prize for it because he said, we're not gonna treat our enemies the way we were treated, we're going to love our enemies and we are gonna do things differently. As Jesus wraps up the passage, verse 48, he says, be perfect therefore as your heavenly father is perfect, that's all. No pressure. Be as perfect as God is. And, and we're very quick. We read that and we say, well, you know, nobody's perfect, right? Like nobody's perfect. And, and we're not going to achieve perfection till we get to heaven because even as we follow after Jesus, we still have our junk. We still continue to, to work through our sin and our baggage and our woundedness and the, the hurts of our past. Like we're still works in progress. And all of those things I believe are true. Uh, on the flip side of that, I don't think we should let ourselves off the hook on that too easily. Because even if I understand, okay, I'm never literally going to be perfect in this life. I'm, I'm going to continue to be a work in progress. At the same time, perfection is the standard, right? And so we don't want to ever say like, well, when he says be perfect, 
He doesn't literally mean be perfect. It's like, no, he literally means be perfect. Be, being perfect is the standard we are shooting for. So we are not gonna let ourselves off the hook to the extreme where we say, well, when he says be perfect, he doesn't really mean it. It's like, oh no, he means it. That is what we're shooting for. And there is grace for where we fall short, but we're not lowering the standard of perfection. We are wanting to have perfect marriages. We are wanting to be perfect parents. We are wanting to be perfectly holy. We are wanting to perfectly walk with him. That is what we are aiming for. And in the name of, well, no one's perfect, we don't want to lower the standard of holiness or lower the standard of what we're shooting for. Jesus sets the bar high, and we are shooting for what's high. We are shooting for that. When he says be perfect, I mean, you could, you know, redefine re that maybe in a few different ways. He's saying be holy. He's saying be Christ-like, who was the only perfect person. Like, be like him. That is the bar. That is where the bar is set. There is grace for where we fall short, and we all fall short, but that's the bar. We're not lowering the bar. That's the bar. That's what we're shooting for. The standard is high, and we want to keep after it. There's a story of a woman, again, who, who lived this out imperfectly, uh, this idea of loving your enemies, which is a hard standard. That's a high standard. Love your enemies. And her name was Corey Ten Boom. And she wrote a book called The Hiding Place, which I think everybody should read. That's one of those books I just found incredibly transformative and encouraging. Uh, and so Corey is a, she's a grown woman. She's living at home with her parents uh, when World War II breaks out. They live in Holland. And as World War II breaks out, the Nazis invade and they take over Holland. Holland is now under Nazi control. And the first thing the Nazis do is they start to round up the Jewish people and they start shipping them off to concentration camps. So Corey and her sister and her father, uh, they have a shop and they have an apartment over the shop that they run and they begin hiding Jewish people in their house. They begin, they have a, a special uh, sort of fake wall that they could keep a family behind and seal it up and keep them safe. And then they start smuggling them out of the country. They start just through bribery and different things. They start uh, getting the Jewish people out to safer places. And so they do this for many families for a couple of years. Uh, eventually they are found out and they are all arrested. They are all sent off to concentration camps themselves. And so Corey is in a concentration camp with her sister. Her father is gone somewhere else. Um, her father eventually dies in the concentration camp. Her sister dies in the concentration camp. Uh, Corey herself survives, but uh, goes through all of the torture, all of the horrible things that we've heard about of concentration camps, just the physical abuse and psychological abuse and, and sexual abuse and all of those things. Uh, she goes through all of it. And then the war comes to an end and she's released. And she begins going around and sharing her story of here's, here is how God was faithful. Um, and the book is full of just miraculous things that God does and, uh, you know, prophetic visions that he would give her about what was going to come. And, and it would come just like her dream or her vision had said. And God's faithfulness was abundant even in this horrible, horrible situation. And so she is telling that story uh, at a church a couple of years after the war ends. And she is just preaching the gospel and just saying, you know what? God is faithful and he loves us and he died for us and he rose for us. Uh, we are forgiven, and what we have to do is receive that forgiveness. We have to say, Lord, I am I'm following after you. And as we do that, Jesus' blood washes away our sins. Our sins are cast to the bottom of the sea. They're removed as far as east is from west. And so she's sharing that story uh, at a church one evening. And then a man comes up to her afterwards to talk to her, which is pretty normal. And she writes that when she turned and when she saw him, she said, my blood froze because he was one of the guards in the concentration camp. 
And he was beaming and he was saying, Fraulein, miss, how wonderful that Jesus' blood has washed away all my sins. And she says, in that moment, I didn't want his sins washed away. My sister died under him and his friends. My father died. I went through terrible things. And she says, I remember him walking around with his whip and he would walk into the showers with the women and he would stand there and stare at them and make comments and just, he said he was one of the most sadistic guards in this whole place. And there he is and he's saying, really? Like my sins are washed away? And he said, I heard you say you were at this concentration camp. He's like, I don't know if you know this, but I was a guard at that concentration camp. And she's going, oh, I know, I know very well. And he said, I have asked the Lord's forgiveness for what I did, and, and I need to ask you your forgiveness. Will you forgive me uh, as Jesus has forgiven us? And she was sitting there and she said, oh, all of my conflicting emotions, all of my conflicting values, all of my, oh, I should forgive him, I don't wanna forgive him, but I've been forgiven by God and I need to extend that forgiveness, but I don't, he's, he was an enemy and I don't wanna love my enemy, but I need to love my enemy. And so she's going through this, this inner you know, chaos for a couple of seconds. And then she said, inside, she said, I'm gonna shake his hand. Lord, I don't wanna do this and I don't feel this at all, but you've told me to do it, so I'm gonna do it. Uh, and that's all I can muster in this moment. And the way she describes it is she went out and she took his hand and she said, as she took his hand, it was like a jolt of electricity went through her body. She said, it started in my hand and it went up into my arm. And she said, it felt like my heart began to melt, literally. And she described it afterwards like, I took the step and then God provided the feeling. And if I'd waited for my feeling to be there, I wouldn't have never done anything. But I took the step of obedience and then God changed me as I did it. And she said, with tears and sincerity, I was able to say, I love you and I forgive you. And to be able to say, I'm gonna spend eternity in heaven with that man. And my sister's gonna be there and my dad's gonna be there. And we're all gonna be united together, not because he deserved it, but because what Jesus has done in me and in him. And so if we wait, it's hard for us because love is an emotional word for us most of the time, right? It's a feeling. And sometimes it's, I can't forgive my enemy, I can't love my enemy, I'm not feeling it. And you might not, right? Especially if it's someone close to you, right? When we walk people through divorce, your ex is not easy to love necessarily, who has maybe hurt you the worst or you've been through the worst with them. But love isn't just an emotion word, love's an action word. And sometimes we need to take a step of action. As we take a step of action, the, the rest can follow after that, because our call is to be obedient. Our call is to, to take that step as God calls us to do that. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done here. I know it's tough teaching today. The Upside Down Kingdom is not always easy. And if you have any questions, if you want to talk more, you can. Uh, questions at meadowbrook.ca is our email address. We'd love to keep chatting with you about that. Martin Luther King, again, who famously didn't just uh, read his Bible, didn't just teach the Bible, didn't just talk about following Jesus, but who actually lived out very dramatically in his context what it meant to love your enemies, said, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. That we're not gonna retaliate, we're not gonna meet people with what they're doing to us, we're gonna, we're gonna do the godly opposite, we're gonna do the loving opposite, we're gonna do the gracious opposite. That's how God dealt with us. 
right? He didn't meet our rebellion with, with his hatred or his anger. He met us with his love. He met us with his grace. And that is what transformed us. That's how God treats us. That's how we are to treat others. And with that, that is a series wrap on the Upside Down Kingdom. Uh, and we hope it's been a good and challenging and helpful series for you. By way of quick recap, we started talking about just the nature of the kingdom. Down is up. That Jesus left heaven. He came down in order to save us, to walk amongst us. Uh, the whole nature of this kingdom is about a king who lowered himself entirely. So the basis of the whole thing is already upside down. We took a week talking about the fact that God is God. We like to be in charge of our own lives. We want to call our own shots. Uh, but God is God and we are not. And that is upside down to the way we would naturally want to do things. But to say I'm a follower of Jesus is to say, well, he is the boss then. He is Lord. And if he is Lord, then that means that I am not Lord. We spend a week talking about others are first. That scripture calls us over and over again to not be self-centered, to put others ahead of ourselves, to put their needs ahead of ours, to honor others above ourselves, and to always be looking outward. Uh, not just looking to our own needs and what we can get and what we want, but how can we put others ahead of ourselves. We took a week talking about lower is higher. We want to elevate ourselves. We want to make ourselves look good. We want to, to show off. We want to be seen as, as whatever in the eyes of people. But uh, followers of Jesus take the opposite approach. We wash feet. We make ourselves lower. We don't need to exalt ourselves. If things need to change in our lives, God is more than willing uh, and able to make that happen if it's in his will. But we don't need to promote ourselves. We don't need to elevate ourselves. We can take the humble path and trust him to do the rest. We took a week to talk about our weaknesses. Weak is strong. We want to lean on our strengths all the time. Uh, but the Apostle Paul says, I actually love it when I'm weak, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm weak, that's where his grace shows up. Where I'm weak, that's where he shows his power, and that's where we know it's his power, because it's not just me doing it. It forces me to lean on him, and he shows up in incredible ways. We spent a week to talk about inside is outside. We don't want to just be people who change our behavior. We want to be transformed on the inside. God's strategy for us is a new heart a new creation, that he would renew us from the inside out. Uh, and we wouldn't just focus on, I'm gonna discipline myself in my sinful behavior to try and do better, but I actually am gonna seek him and be renewed on the inside so that I don't wanna do those things anymore. It's ultimately a better way to go. We took a week last week to talk about conflict. Conflict is peacified, pacified. We are called to be peacemakers, peace creators, not peacekeepers who just kind of hang back uh, and just don't do anything because we don't want to make a conflict, but people who would actively engage in conflict in order to end it, who would actually be a force for good wherever we're seeing conflict around us. We wrap up today with enemies are loved. And just very practically today, uh, for you to think about as you go, think about those people, think about that person in your life, uh, think about the one that you're struggling with, and just like that Corey Ten Boom story, what would be a small step even to take towards showing love? What would a small step of action be in order to do that, in order to demonstrate that as Jesus has modeled for us, as Corey has modeled for us, as Martin Luther King has modeled for us, as Nelson Mandela has modeled for us, what is a good step that we can take towards somebody where we demonstrate that love to them? That's it for the series. We're going to wrap up with some worship. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet, please. Uh, the words will be up on the screen. We encourage you to sing along with us.